I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio, and we got an exciting episode for you today. We have an announcement for a brand new show that we're doing at Adventure Rider Radio. I'm not going to give it away now. You're going to have to stick around for that. Coming up, though, we've got Josh Cat from Victory Electric Motorcycles, who's here to talk about the electric bike. And we're not only going to talk about the Victory bike, we're going to talk about what it's like to ride an electric bike, because Josh has spent a lot of time on them. We also have Spencer Hill, who's done a review on the Liat Neck Brace, something you may not have considered now, but, you know, not too far in the future, it might be a standard piece of safety equipment. Stick around. This may change your mind about a neck brace. Hi, I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Austin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed March. Glenn Hitstead. Dr. Gregory W. Fraser. Dave Barr. Alan Carl. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schwartz. Brett Tack. Zoe Cannell. Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins. Joe Ruff. Jeremy Craker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Wick. Seth Simon. Elizabeth Martin. And I'm Jim Martin, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. This episode is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. Sign up for their e-rider newsletter too at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. And Best Rest Products, home of Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, whether you're on the road or off the road, for that matter, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system, and it can inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's made in the USA, and get this, it has a lifetime warranty, which is brand new. Best Rest also makes tire changing and tire repair kits that are small enough to fit in your saddlebag, and the crew at Best Rest are adventure riders themselves. They know what you need when you're exploring the world visit them at cyclepump.com that's cyclepump.com Puget Sound Safety Off-Road, or PSSOR, provides world-class motorcycle training. Learn proper off-road riding techniques from the pros at PSSOR for your dirt bike, dual sport, or large adventure bike, and increase your skill and confidence so you're ready to tackle your next adventure. Visit www.pssor.com. That's www.pssor.com. Most people ride their motorcycles for pleasure and others as a means or maybe a preferred means of transportation. And no doubt we're, we're quite used to our gas-powered engines. We're used to the noise, the vibration, the smell. We have lots of torque and power and we have fuel tanks that hold enough fuel to travel long distances, not to mention the fact that gas stations are everywhere. Well, all that may change in the future as gasoline becomes more and more expensive and more difficult to find. In the last few years, motorcycle manufacturers have been introducing electric motorcycles. You've heard about electric cars coming on. Just about every manufacturer has an electric car now. And while it's a very new thing for us diehard bikers, electric motorcycles are starting to gain a toehold in this competitive industry. Till recently, it's been smaller manufacturers that have been leading the possible upcoming trend in quiet moto transport, the electric motorcycle. But now the majors are starting to come on board with their own designs and their own ideas about the electric motorcycle and where it's going to go. When you're comparing the performance of the gas power to the electric powered motorcycle, a few key points stand out. 
The traditional gas-powered motorcycle averages 200 miles per tank or more, and the electric-powered motorcycles are only reaching about half that. And the thing is with the electric-powered bikes is you can't just add a bigger tank as easily as you can with a gas-powered motorcycle. You can refuel your gas-powered motorcycle at almost every corner in the city and almost every town in the world, but it's a lot more difficult, or maybe a lot more difficult, to find a place to recharge your electric bike. And when you're going to do it, you have to dedicate some time to it, because if you're using just a regular 110-volt outlet, it can take up to 10 hours or more. The thing is with the electric motorcycles, they require almost no maintenance and they have very few moving parts. But dollar for dollar, with fuel costs rising in countries around the world, the electric motorcycle could save you hundreds of dollars a year and it could provide you with a completely new riding experience. Today we're going to speak with Josh Catt, a product manager for Victory Electric Motorcycles. Josh not only works at Victory, but he also has ridden the electric motorcycle that they have quite a bit. Josh, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thanks. Well, I, and, and we spoke before, so I know that you have a history of motorcycle riding, and, and I'm going to delve right into it, because the whole electric bike phenomenon, now I call it a phenomenon, but it's... um. It's been it's been coming to the market for a while now, and now there's a bunch of different players that that are presenting these electric bikes. Let me ask you right off the bat, from your own riding experience, because I know you're a rider first. Yeah. Would you have turned to an electric bike if we weren't looking at a, a fuel crisis? I mean, if we weren't sort of being pushed towards or feeling like we're pu- pushing towards alternatives, would you have been interested in the electric bike? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think there's there's a number of benefits to electric technology. And one of them that I think people are beginning to realize more and more is that it can offer performance. You know, Tesla has really helped to bring people's, you know, minds around that and show them that, uh, you know, an electric motor can deliver that blistering acceleration and and can really be a, a fun uh, technology to use. And, you know, that, that translates directly to motorcycles as well, where, you know, it, it's probably not good for everything you want to do on two wheels, but for certain applications, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. Well, it's interesting when we look at uh, electric propulsion. It's not new. It's it's been used in a lot of industries and in, in heavy industry for a long time. Right. And you can do a lot of things with it. One of the amazing things that, as you were saying right there, is with the uh, having that uh, amount of power available instantly. This is why we're seeing things like um, I, I think it was uh, one of the one of the motorcycles that that ran in um, a hill climb in Colorado. Um, I, I'm, I'm just sort of remembering now reading something about the the fastest bike was an electric bike. Do you know about that? Yeah, absolutely. So the uh, the Pikes Peak International Hill Climb is put on every year, and electric technology has really become a leader in that. Uh, and, you know, one of the main reasons is you're gaining a bunch of elevation as you run through that race. And so a number of, of records have been set by both electric four-wheelers and electric two-wheelers in that, uh, in that race pretty incredible because I think, you know, in the past, at least from my memory of electric propulsion, especially portable electric propulsion, I'm not talking about the mining equipment that's plugged in. I'm talking about people converting their their motorcycles or their cars. The issue of capacity and power has always been a big deal. You've thought of electric powered vehicles, especially bicycles. You think of the bicycle market, they were always sort of low power. They didn't really have that much. But but nowadays, as you're saying, these electric motors are so powerful that they're actually, they're, they're, they're not only a threat, they're just taking over as far as speed what is it about them that um, that makes them so powerful yeah you know the 
the advances in the electric motor technology are one one big portion of this but honestly the the vast majority of the advances have come with the increasing energy and power density with lithium ion batteries and you know as we've seen uh, the you know that technology evolve and you know a lot more research dollars put into lithium ion batteries we, we've kind of opened up this possibility of actually being able to store enough energy on board something like a motorcycle to make it a, a fun engaging and practical uh, vehicle so really you can almost say that the motorcycle the electric motorcycle sort of arriving really it's not arriving by uh, a push for um, a new uh, a new style of a machine why it's arriving right now is because our technology is caught up with it we didn't have the yeah. capacity we didn't have the battery power before now we do and all of a sudden the possibilities are endless you got it a lot of us talk about in the motorcycle industry talk about what it's going to be like to ride an electric motorcycle i'm sure you have ridden an electric motorcycle <laughs> i put a few miles on <laughs> and of course the first thing that comes to mind the first thing josh that i think of and, and many people mention first off is that smell of gasoline and oil and the sound of the bike now you already said that you would go for an electric bike or you'd be interested in electric bikes right off the bat how do you think that transition is going to happen moving away from the oil and gas and the noise to a quiet electric bike. Yeah, well, you know, I think where I want to focus on this is that, you know, that there's different tools for different jobs, right? And uh, so I, I myself have a two-stroke off-road bike. Um, you know, I also have sport bikes, big touring cruisers. Um, those things are all really great for what they were built and designed for, but electric technology can deliver on things that those can't um you know there's there's a little coffee shop right down the street from my place that's kind of a big biker hangout and that's one of my favorite places to pull up on uh, the victory impulse because you know so much of the engagement with motorcycles is around that you know the feel the vibration the sound all of that and so when you take that away it actually on some levels adds to the experience because now it's new. It's something interesting. It's something engaging. And I get so many more conversations around, you know, that uh, Victory Impulse when I pull up to that coffee shop than I do, say, my old, you know, Honda CB350 or my, you know, Buell 1125. Well, that's an interesting perspective. That really is. I didn't expect to hear that. And, and I guess the other thing, too, is this thing is no slouch. I mean, nobody's going to say, oh, well, yeah, but it's just an electric bike. You can't keep up to me. Right. No, absolutely. It's uh, it's fun and engaging to ride. We have on Vancouver Island here in Canada, where I'm located, there are uh, electric charging stations that have appeared in the last few years. Now, I don't know if they're getting used very much, but it's an interesting concept because when you look at the length of, of Vancouver Island, it appears that you can take an electric vehicle and run the entire length of the island due to these charging stations. And some of them have been set up in, a, in remote places. There's one in a town called Wasp, which is basically just a fuel stop and a, and a convenience store. But they've got this, sure. this electric charging station in. That has been a, a big part of people's reluctance, I think, to move to electrics. Absolutely. You know, it's kind of the, the chicken or the egg, right? Um, nobody wants to buy an electric vehicle if they can't charge it anywhere, but nobody wants to install an electric charging station if there are no electric vehicles on the road. So, you know, it, it's been a slow process to, to build that infrastructure, but now there's over 25,000 charging outlets um, in, in the U.S. I can't speak for Canada, um, but, uh, you know, it, 
that that infrastructure is growing and fortunately we do, we do actually have the the capability of utilizing much of that infrastructure with the impulse well let's get an idea sort of of what we're talking about here is is as far as storage capacity and really i guess we have to talk distance or or expected distance um if we talk about the victory motorcycle uh, what are we looking at as far as distance how, how much can we get out of this yeah, we, uh, we, we've measured that a whole bunch of different ways. 95 city miles measured per the, the Motorcycle Industry Council um, method is, you know, kind of where we're certified. What I will say is that range is highly dependent on speed. So, you know, when I'm out having fun on the bike, maybe commuting, you know, doing more freeway, getting my speeds up, um, 60 to 65 miles is more common. Okay, so if you're around town, and especially if you're commuting to work and back, that could work perfectly in Absolutely. somebody's schedule because often you're not going very far. Yeah, you know, the average commuter in the U.S. is only going about uh, 38, 40 miles per day. And, you know, so oftentimes you can do one, maybe even two days of commuting without plugging in. Oh, that's interesting. And, and they're also, they're easy to plug in. Uh, you, you have uh, low-voltage plugs you can use as well. Yep, Exactly. But you mentioned about it's highly dependent on how fast you ride. That shouldn't be something new to any motorcycle rider because we all know that when you go easy, you can get some really good mileage out of your bike and you just start hitting the throttle hard and your mileage plummets. So it's basically the same thing. Yeah, exactly. If you're willing to follow that uh, semi you know, a little bit too closely, you can, you can get your range way up there. Okay, so if I'm riding a, a Victory electric motorcycle, the Impulse, and I run out of juice and I have to charge it up, how long am I stuck sitting somewhere before I can go again? Sure. From zero to 100% charge, which I would say is a pretty rare occurrence, it's 3.9 hours. And uh, that's using what we call a a level two charger. So something that's charging at at 240 volts. Um, We have that available as an accessory. So let's say you've got like a welder outlet in your um, garage, you can plug into that. Or, you know, that public charging infrastructure that we talked about, that all operates at that 240 volts as well. Um, if, if you're only running at 120 volts, it's about eight and a half, uh, 8.9 hours for a full charge. So, okay, so 3.9, that, that's not bad at all. 8.9, no. uh, you're talking to 100%. But do I have to wait for it to, to go to 100%? Can I just give it a partial charge and then head home? Yes, absolutely. And uh, so, there, you know, there's no need to wait for the entire thing. And, and as a matter of fact, the beginning portion of the charge and the ending portion of the charge take longer. We limit the current at, uh, you know, between about 0 and 20% and between about 80 and 100%. So really between 20 and 80%, uh, it only takes about two hours at a level two charge. So that's easy enough to, to get around. And I guess once you get used to it, yeah. um, you would just adapt your, your riding style. I mean, I guess you're not buying this bike to um, do a round-the-world trip. That's exactly it. Yep. You know, it's it's not the bike that you're taking even on a weekend adventure. You know, it's probably something that you're using for around town, like we talked about, commuting. Um, but, you know, something that can add a little fun to uh, to that process. So you've ridden the bike a lot, I gather. What's it like? Yeah. Um, you know, like I said, that instant acceleration is, is really the fun part. Um, something else that's kind of unique about the Victory Impulse TT specifically is we do have a six-speed transmission on it. And so that 
you know, it, it, it kind of speaks to the more classic riders. You can get that same engagement. You can shift through the gears that, that does offer you better acceleration down at the bottom end and, you know, a higher top speed, 100 plus miles per hour up the, the top end. Um, but it, it also just adds that familiarity that we have with, you know, all the other bikes that we love. Um, but at the same time, you could put the bike in third gear and ride it around like an automatic without the clutch whenever you want. And so, you know, having those options and having new ways of interacting make it, make it exciting. When you're riding along and with, without hearing the noise of the, of the engine, what do you do? Yeah, you know, that's, I would say when I'm talking to folks about, you know, their likes, their dislikes, their concerns about electric motorcycles, noise comes up nine times out of ten. And to be real honest, after you ride it a few times, that concern goes away. Uh, you know, first and foremost, I think, you know, some people think our, our car is going to notice me, that type of thing. And I, I would argue that if, if you're relying on your exhaust note to alert, uh, you know, surrounding drivers to your presence, that's, you know, you're, you're probably not riding quite defensively enough. Um, and, you know, so you, you just need to be conscious of, of your surroundings. But in your own mind, the, uh, the noise thing kind of goes away because you've got the wind noise, you've got the rush of the acceleration. You kind of forget about, uh, about that. It's actually really peaceful. Where do you think it's going to go in the long run, the whole electric bike thing? Um, that's, a, that's a great question. So, I, you know, n- nobody really knows. What I can say is that the advances in electric technology, both, you know, like we were talking about the electric motor development, the power electronics, so the items that are used to, you know, charge the batteries, control the motor, those types of things, as well as the, the battery chemistry and, you know, the energy density and the ability to pull power out of the batteries. The rate at which those items are advancing is absolutely incredible. And so, you know, the, the sky's the limit on this one for sure. Really the only limiter right now still, uh, and, uh, and although we've come a long way with it, is the battery capacity. I mean, once you get that battery able to do 300 miles sort of thing, that would be incredible. Yes, totally agree. Yep. And, you know, and, and the, other, the other portion there is um, the ability to charge more rapidly. So, you know, being able to put more power in, in a shorter amount of time uh, you know, helps with that, that usability and, you know, not necessarily having to have all your energy on board when you're going to make a trip, but being able to fill up a couple times along the trip. Sure. So you can, so you're not held up, so you can just treat it like a, a gasoline powered vehicle. What about yep. a, a hybrid? It has, has Victory looked at anything like that? Um, you know, I, I can't comment too much about, uh, the different technologies we're looking at. What I will say is that, you know, a, a hybrid is a little bit of a, um, harder market to get into only because yeah, the, there's, you know, we all know that there's some cost hurdles for electric vehicles in general, but as soon as you have both the electric and the, uh, the gas motors in place, the, the cost of the vehicle does go up pretty substantially. Not to mention packaging on a motorcycle does become pretty difficult. What's the cost at now? The, uh, the Victory Impulse TT retails for nineteen nine ninety nine. That's in the U.S.? Correct, in the U.S. Yeah, the uh, Canadian pricing, I should know that. Give me one second here. 
it's twenty three eight or twenty three seven nine nine. I think is what yeah, so I think okay, yeah, twenty three seven nine ninety nine. So yeah, so the um, MSRP in the U.S. is nineteen nine ninety nine, and in Canada twenty three seven nine ninety nine. Um, the good news is in the U.S. the uh, federal government just passed a new tax legislation which provides a ten percent um, federal tax credit for the purchase of uh, an Impulse TT. Is so that right? Yep, two thousand dollars off. When you file your taxes, um, you file for the federal tax credit, and uh, it'll take $2,000 off your taxes. Um, it's very similar to the $7,500 discount that um, is provided for electric cars. Wow, that's, that has to be an incentive for people to buy for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's a number of uh, incentives state by state as well. So. That was Josh Catt, a product manager for Victory Electric Motorcycles. And you can find out more about the Victory Impulse TT by dropping by our website and look at the show notes. We'll have a link there taking you to it. Or, of course, you can just Google it. Well, you know one of our show sponsors is AeroStitch. And you can go to their website, www.aerostitch.com. I'm going to spell it for you so you know. It's A-E-R-O-S-T-I-C-H, aerostitch.com. I'm sure if you Google it, you're going to come up with a, a variation of it. But you can get their catalog, and I, and I keep talking about their catalog, which I think is really cool. I have one. You can get their catalog. If you don't want to order it um, and have it mailed to you, you can download their digital catalog right now online. Go to their main page, and you'll see the, the slideshow playing there, and it has the option to click on it and download their catalog. But it's interesting because we're talking about electric bikes this week. Well, guess who is going to be riding an electric bike all winter long, testing out their gear and how an electric bike handles the winter in Minnesota? It's Aerostar. And if you go to their website, they've got a thing on there. They just sent out a press release the other day, which I thought was really cool. And it's another reason. It's another reason you look at a company like Aerostitch and you know it is a rider company. I mean, for them to do something like this, get this uh, zero motorcycle and start riding it through the winter, um, it's, just, it's just a really cool thing. And anyway, they're going to have a blog on that and you'll be able to follow it. So I, I strongly, uh, highly recommend that you go to the website follow the blog and because we're going to as well to see what it's like what, what's it going to be like to ride this electric motorcycle through the winter and, and it's for commuting which is really neat because i think that's where the electric bikes really shine is when it comes down to commuting and another way you can tell that aerostitch is a totally rider focused company and the fact they really care about us as riders is their ride more guarantee they're saying buy an aerostitch one-piece suit and try it for 30 days if you're not riding more than you were when you started then you can return it and get a full refund, no questions asked. That's how confident they are, not only in their product, um, but in the fact that it's built in a way that will get you on the bike more. That's really cool, and uh, that, that excites me a lot. It's one reason that I really like AeroStitch. Anytime you're dealing with AeroStitch, make sure that you fill out the code, the coupon code ARR. Of course, that means Adventure Rider Radio. You know, we use that code here. The ARR code will get you 10% off your first order or free shipping if you're a return customer. And anytime you're dealing with them or any of the companies that sponsor the show, make sure you let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. AeroStitch.com. That's www.aerostitch.com.
Back in 1935, Lawrence of Arabia was riding his Bruff Superior SS100. Back then, the SS100 was the super bike. It uh, was guaranteed to do the ton, 100 mile an hour. And Lawrence was riding along a road that had a dip in it ahead, and that dip concealed a couple of young boys on bicycles. When he topped the dip and was able to see in, there was nothing he could do except swerve. And he swerved for the ditch, he lost control, and crashed his motorcycle, dying six days later of his injuries. One of the doctors that treated him while he was in the hospital and they were trying to save him was neurosurgeon Hugh Cairns. Cairns began to study the unnecessary loss of life due to head injuries, like the one that Lawrence of Arabia sustained in his crash, and of dispatch riders. And his research led to the use of crash helmets for motorcycles. Nowadays, helmets are considered by most as part of the gear that you wear no matter what, and you wear it without a second thought. For many, the idea of riding without one is ludicrous. Today, we have Spencer Hill, the gear dude, on our show talking about his latest review of the Liat neck brace. And at first, it may be considered in the same light as helmets were back in 1935, possibly an unnecessary thing. But in the future, this could be accepted as standard safety gear. I'm speaking with Spencer Hill, who many of you know as the gear dude who does gear reviews. How's it going, Spencer? It's going well. How's it going with you? Oh, very good. We've got a, a nice snowy day on Vancouver Island today. I mean, an incredibly snowy day, surprisingly. So you've got a new product there you've checked out, which is kind of an unlikely thing. Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, uh, I got the Liat STX Road Neck Brace. It's a street-specific neck brace in Liat's lineup. And uh, it was an interesting product that I kept hearing more and more about over the course of the summer and it's just something that always kind of interested me, so I decided to test it out, and uh, I'm pretty excited with uh, how well it worked. Okay, well, let's first look at what a neck brace is and why it's required. That's part of uh, what I wanted to find out is, like, is this a required piece of equipment, you know? Um, but the, the general concept of this neck brace uh, is to prevent uh, extreme loads on your neck, basically, um, so extreme sideways extensions of the neck, um, uh, forward and rear. And the idea is that this will not allow your neck to hyperextend itself in any direction. And also it will transfer the load from your helmet to the neck brace. So you can't put a severe load on your spine. So if I have this right, it looks like it's almost a limiter, like a movement limiter. It allows you a certain amount of movement and then no more. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so that part protects it, like you said, from hyperextending and then doing the damage. The idea being that the damage is when it gets to that hyperextension point, which I think most of us can understand. Now, you'd mentioned it first, when you first mentioned this to me, Spencer, you'd said that you'd heard talk in the ADV community about people wondering if they should be riding with them. Yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, like I said, this summer I was kind of exposed to this ongoing debate. Um, of uh, People thought it was a, a great concept. People thought it was a silly concept, you know. And uh, I'm a pretty at-gat uh, type of guy, you know. Uh, but even I was kind of like, well, is that really something that, that's worth wearing every time you ride? And, uh, you know, so that's why I kind of wanted to look into this. And uh, once I did, and my biggest concern was, okay, well, this is going to be super uncomfortable. 
it's going to be distracting every time that I ride. And I wanted to see if I could incorporate this into like my everyday riding routine. And uh, I was able to, and uh, I was pretty impressed with uh, how well it just sort of melted into my riding gear. How much time does it take to set it up to begin with? Out of the box, it comes with all the tools and sizing pieces that you need. You order it in one of three sizes, and then when you get it, you can kind of dial it in with these spacer pieces. And it took me probably about two minutes to put in the new spacer pieces, and then you just put it on. It's a clamshell style that uh, opens up on either side the red clamps there, and uh, you just toss it on over your shoulders and hit the clamp and it's on. Okay. So you've got it on and you're, you're sort of protected at that point. Was there any time you've been riding with it that you found you needed it or that it actually did something? No, no. I mean, thankfully I I didn't crash test it, which is good. But, uh, so that's the only aspect where I, I haven't tested it. I had to kind of rely on Liet's, um, statistics and their, their lab findings and stuff. Right. Well, I mean, there's not many of us that go and test helmets either, right? I mean, (laughs) we're going to try that. And we understand that. That's great. But I guess the thing is, did you feel like you were protected? You know, did you feel like you had an added level of protection? Did it give you some sort of confidence that you didn't otherwise have? Yeah. Yeah. And the the one thing that uh, I've been kind of explaining to people as I've been testing this is, if anybody's on the fence about this, it's really astounding when you put on a helmet without the neck brace on and you rotate your head around as far as you can rotate it without a neck brace on. And then you put the neck brace on and then you try to rotate your head around and see how much more limited your neck movement is. And, uh, it's pretty amazing. And it makes me feel naked whenever I don't wear the neck brace now, just because my neck feels so vulnerable with how far you can actually move it. I guess the same as all safety gear, really. I mean, we don't ever want to use it, I and mean, we certainly don't want to use the pads that we have on our jackets, you know, or the abrasive material that we wear uh, to protect us. We don't want to do it, but it does add that layer of security and also sort of a, lets you know that you're fitted, you're, you're kitted out, you're you're at GAD, really. I mean, you are wearing all the gear and protecting yourself the best you possibly can. Of course, there's limits because some people are going to say, look, I don't wear my pants when it gets really hot. And and we know there's all kinds of shades in between of what people do. What would you say that would convince a a rider of an adventure bike that they need to get something like that? Well, I I don't know. I kind of tried to avoid that in my review of like saying you need to get this or you don't need to get this. I think it's a great product. And I'm of the the school of thought that if if the protection is there, if this technology is available, why not utilize it? You know, they've got real statistics that that point out how much these specific braces can reduce the impacts on your neck. So my opinion was, if that protection is there, then I want to take advantage of it because I think this is going to be something in another couple of years. It's going to be like the the movement from. Uh, open face helmets to full face helmets. You know, I think in another couple of years, everybody's going to be like, man, you believe that we didn't wear neck braces? 
that's an excellent point, Spencer. You know, I guess if we were to go back before the helmet was a mainstream thing for motorcycles, people may have said the same thing. You know, what are you going to wear that for? Maybe the, the padding in our jackets. If it's a safety device that research shows that it prevents injuries, then it ups our level of security and safety for riding. So why not use it? Yeah, yeah. You know, we were talking about how, you know, you don't crash test a helmet. And obviously, I didn't crash test this, but that's why I kind of focused in the the review about uh, comfort. And uh, that's why I think that's like one of the most important things to look at when you're looking at these kind of things, because really 99, hopefully 99% of the time, you're just worrying about the comfort of this device as opposed to like the actual safety features, because hopefully you never have to actually test the safety features. And I, I think it was phenomenal fit and finish. And I think it's a really comfortable product. 400 bucks, eh? That seems like a, a big chunk of money. But I mean, I guess it's the same thing as a jacket and a helmet. It's all it's all that stuff you've got to weigh up, whether it's worth it to spend the money. I, I mean, you know what it is? It's, it's one of those things that when you if you didn't use it and something happened, it would just be nothing but regrets. And, and like you said, I, I thought you made a very good point when you said, you know, if the safety gear is there and it's available, you think that, you know, why not use it? Yeah. Yeah. And and then I, I've been doing a lot of research in different forums, trying to get a feel for for people's opinions on this kind of stuff. And it's just like what you were talking about. And one of the things that stuck with me is somebody said, well, yeah, it's it's 400 bucks. It's it's expensive, but, you know, it's it's less expensive than the hospital bills if you got into a serious accident. And I think that goes along with what you were saying. Like if you weren't wearing it and you had a serious neck injury, then I think I would just feel super regretful, you know? Yeah. Spencer, you also have uh, an event coming up or, or a trip that you've planned that's rather special. Tell us about that. Yeah, I have a trip coming up called uh, First Ride Up the Divide. First Ride Up the Divide. So from what I understand, you're going with a, a group, but you're also taking two people who have not ridden. What is the point of your trip? The point of our trip is to showcase the accessibility of the adventure riding world i want to i'm got tired of people saying oh someday i'm gonna do that or you know oh i want to try that sometime or uh, when i get a new bike i think i can do that trip so i got this concept to uh, well i wanted to ride the continental divide trip from uh, mexico to canada and i started thinking well hey why don't we uh why don't we put two guys on motorcycles that uh, have never been on motorcycles before just to prove that anybody can do it? How'd you find two guinea pigs that wanted to try this with you? <laughs> yeah, they are <laughs> our special guinea pigs. Now, they're actually uh, two close friends of mine that uh, had been on uh, overland trips with us. Uh, they did a uh, Oregon backcountry discovery route trip with us two years ago, and they were in a Jeep following behind us. Uh, guys on motorcycles and they had a great time and they were really into it so they've kind of been saying ever since that trip like "Ooh, we should learn how to ride motorcycles oh we should get on motorcycles you know but it was always kind of like uh, uh who knows if that's ever going to happen type of deal and then uh i kind of got the idea and i said hey you guys are going to learn how to ride motorcycles <laughs> well tell us about the trip what sort of things will you encounter and how far is it it's just under three thousand miles and uh, it will be going from the desert in New Mexico to all the really high mountain passes in Colorado 
through Yellowstone. It's just a, a very, very cool cross section of terrain and uh, scenery all the way up the Continental Divide. Most of it's um, gravel roads, pretty well groomed stuff. Uh, it's not altogether too challenging. We're not trying to to kill our newbies. You know, we're just trying to to show that uh, anybody can out get out there and do this type of quote unquote adventure riding. You know. What time frame do you have to do this in? We're going to be taking off in early July this year, and we have a window of about 14 to 21 days to do the trip. But that's partially because we're we're going to be doing a, a web episode documentary, so we're going to be doing a bunch of filming and photography stuff along the way, just to show how they handle it and what it's like from their perspective. Yeah. Yeah. And just kind of show, uh, so a lot of it's going to be them, uh, obviously learning the first couple of days of how they're picking up riding, how they get used to doing this type of camping on and off the motorcycle, all the things that, that we sort of get used to. And so when you say web episode series, you're talking about like a, like six different, um, uh, shows. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how many installments we're going to do right now but the the format that i like that we're looking at right now is five six minute videos to sort of so you don't get bored out of your skull and that way we can do some cool things with uh as far as the the different segments we decide to film and and what kind of action we decide to get you know now that sounds really interesting and how does somebody find out more or follow you once you start on this trip well they can uh, find us on instagram at uh, first ride up the divide they can find more information on my website, thegeardude.com, and you can find us on Facebook at First Ride Up the Divide. I've been speaking with Spencer Hill from thegeardude.com, and you can find out more about uh, the different reviews that he does posted on his website, as well as his First Up the Divide trip um, starting for next July. So drop by his website and check it out, or drop by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com, and look at the show notes for this episode. Well, we're really happy to be associated with Giant Loop. It's a big deal for us to have Giant Loop as a show sponsor. They are um, they're not only the manufacturer of some amazing bags um, that they're really well known for, like incredibly durable, waterproof bags. They're, actually, their motto is Go Light, Go Fast, which I think is really cool. Anybody who's into uh, small adventure bikes or even dual sport bikes or anything like that can certainly appreciate that. You know, you've got a, a bike that doesn't have a big rack system on it and doesn't have uh, uh, a whole bunch of stuff on it. You want to get your bags on there. You want the bags secure and you want to go far with them. The one thing with, with Giant Loop is they make amazing hold downs. Like they, they do all the waterproof, all the durable stuff. That I mean, these these bi- these bags were designed um, by the people at Giant Loop for riders. These guys are riders. Um, so the bags are amazing. You've got to go and check out their bags at their website. They're also the exclusive distributor for North America for Rally Raid products. That's the Honda CB500. Um, they sell the kits, parts, and accessories. You can turn the CB500 into the lightest, lowest seat height, dirt-capable twin-cylinder adventure bike on the market, period. That's what they say. They've got the wheels and suspension and parts upgrades, all for the Honda CB500. So they're, they're the exclusive distributor for North America. So go check it out, the Giant Loop website, which is giantloopmoto.com. And of course, when you you're doing something with Giant Loop, use the promo code ARR, and you know what that means, Adventure Rider Radio, and that way they know it comes from us. And if you want a durable bag, and, and you've got to look at it because they make all different bags. They make tank bags and everything. If you want a durable, 
top quality bag, I urge you to go check out Giant Loop. You know that we only get manufacturers on here that we want to stand behind or or that we get companies on here that we want to stand behind. And this is one. Giant Loop, fantastic company to deal with. Check them out, giantloopmoto.com. Okay, so now I promised you at the start a big announcement. Well, here it is. Adventure Rider Radio has a brand new show out for you to go listen to. It's separate from the show you're listening to right now, so you'll have to go to the website and look at it. And you'll have to subscribe to it as a separate podcast. It's called ARR Raw. And basically what it is is roundtable discussions. It's sort of like taking a microphone into a a circle of um, adventure riders, travelers, and sitting on like a fly on the wall and listening to what goes on. It's slightly more structured than that. We go through some topics and we run through it, but we've got a great panel of guests. We've got Grant Johnson from Horizons Unlimited. We have Sam Manicom, author, adventurer. We have Graham Field as well, author, adventurer. We have Shirley Hardy Ricks and Brian Ricks, who are both authors and adventurers from Australia. So we've got some from the UK, we've got some from Australia, and some from Canada. And it's a lot of fun we've already done our first episode it is out now and ready for you to download as soon as you're done listening to this but what we're going to do today is i'm going to give you an excerpt of adventure rider radio raw or arr raw right now and you're going to be able to get a little tidbit of what this show is all about if you like it go and download it and tell your friends we had a lot of fun doing it and we're going to do it once a month so it doesn't come out once a week like this show does it's going to come out once a month here we go here's an excerpt from the first episode of ARR Raw. Today is January 8th, 2016, and welcome to the first ever Adventure Rider Radio Raw. It's a roundtable discussion about motorcycles, travel, and anything else that crosses our mind. Completely unscripted, raw, and possibly offensive. We do have Graham Field here. Today, (laughs) at the virtual roundtable, afforded through the magic of the internet, we have six of us today. Sam Manicom, Graham Field, Shirley Hardy Ricks, Brian Ricks, Grant Johnson and myself, Jim Martin. And what I'll do first is I'm going to go around to everybody. And if you can just say where you are and maybe what time zone you're in, that sort of thing. Sam? Hey, good evening, everybody. Um, yeah, you can tell it's evening because I've just said that. It's um, it's eight minutes past nine in the UK at the moment. And it's a lovely, clear, starry night out there. And Graham? Hi, um, I'm in Bulgaria. It is just after 11 o'clock at night. And uh, that means that if you are in mountain time in the US and you want to have a beer at eight o'clock in the morning and say it's five o'clock somewhere, it's five o'clock here. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure how relevant that is, but anyway, Shirley and Brian. Good morning from uh, January 9 in Melbourne, Australia, where it's uh, eight minutes past 8 a.m. and it's going to be 35 today, today when the sun comes up. Yeah, and um, we got up a little early because Shirley had the wrong time zone, but uh, that's okay. I've had two copies, so I'm not grumpy anymore. Brian, we were well aware of that, and I wasn't going to bring it up, but I'm glad you did. Grant? (laughs) Hi, everybody. I'm here in sunny, well, actually, it's not sunny at the moment, Abbotsford. It's probably cloudy as usual, and we've had some lovely weather. And Abbotsford, that's British Columbia, Canada, of course. And it and is. and Grant, cloudy there. I mean, that's the that's the sunny really of Abbotsford, isn't it? Yeah, that's <laughs> it's uh, Abbotsford is known for being colder than Vancouver and hotter than Vancouver. At the moment, it's 
foggy, cloudy, ugly, generally not very nice, but we try. Occasionally we get good weather here. So on, on today's roundtable discussion, we, we I, I sent out for suggestions and Graham Field came up with this one. So I'm going to have you explain it, Graham, because what you wrote was best left behind in your working world. It's hard to do, but less traveling means more experiences. Uh, yeah, well, all I was saying, a lot of people, um, I think when they when they are planning their trip uh, with research, start realizing how much there is to see and probably stretch themselves uh, or their itinerary a bit further than it should be and you might initially get on the road in, in our case when, when I leave the UK we cross the channel which is like a significant moment now you're independent because you can cross continents without without ferries or anything else and all of a sudden you find you're racing to try and get to these places and meet these schedules and I agree to that, you know, well, Western Europe, for example, for me is very expensive, so I try and get to Eastern Europe as quick as I can. But getting to the point in your trip where you slow the pace and enjoy what's around and take up the opportunities when they occur, rather than just being blinkered and tunnel vision to the next point in this sort of highly scheduled uh, itinerary that you have, I just think if you can leave those deadlines behind and if you can just... If you don't get to see everything on on your uh, on your itinerary, it's probably better to to do less distance and see more than it is to just come back with a list that's all been checked off. But in actual fact, it's been as busy, if not busier, than the time at work that you did to to afford this holiday in the first place. I, I, so what you're saying is, you know, you're you're saying you're making out your itinerary and then really not following it. I think there's a lot to be said to throwing the itinerary out the window when you get on the road and just try and get into road mode, which is a much easier said than done. Sometimes it can happen in days. More often it takes weeks, sometimes even months. But getting into road mode and just getting into that relaxed, if you only do 30 miles in a day because you see a beautiful lake with a lovely campground and that's a good place to stop, that can be a wonderful thing as, and sometimes far more rewarding than doing a 300-mile day to get to the next hotel, to see the next site, and so on. Anyone just jump in here anytime. Uh, Sam, what's your thoughts on this? Well, funny enough, I'd, I'd kind of read the topic in a slightly different way. Um, I was thinking about, um, in part, um, what Graham's just been saying about the come down time from, from Western working life. I mean, for me, um, you know, most of my trips tend to be um, six weeks plus, And funny enough, that six weeks tends to be um, the come down time for me. It takes me about that amount of time before I start thinking about having to meet deadlines and schedules. But the different way that I'd started looking at this was um, the number of people that hit the road and intend to do quite a lot of work while they're traveling. And it concerns me that so many people are doing that because it um, it starts getting in the way of all the possibilities that the road offers you. Having said that, um, in one way, it's actually quite wonderful that we can all go traveling and actually make a living while we're traveling if we so choose. But um, it also does bother me that if we're following, um, you know, these deadlines and schedules which allow us to work, 
um, then we're we're missing the, the the escape and and the freedom and and the opportunity to take advantage of all of those new challenges and so on. Um, and I, I just crave the flexibility that dumping schedules and, and deadlines uh, allows me to take advantage of. Well, do you know all of those side turnings, the, 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 the interesting roads that turn up that you're not expecting to go down. You've got no plans, you've got no knowledge for, but it's there and it looks interesting. And you've got all the freedom in the world just to be able to go, let's go take a look. And I, I love that, but I can't do it without dumping um, those deadlines and schedules. And you know, the only deadlines and schedules that I'm really interested in are the length of my visa and the application time it takes to get it. Um, finding somewhere cheap to stay before um, it starts getting dark. Um, and you know, I was talking earlier about write, you know, working while I'm traveling. I only ever write articles when I find myself in a place where I want to stay for some period of time, not because I'm forced to or anything else like that, because it just feels like the right place to stay. And to me, that is one of the ways of defeating um, these deadlines and schedules. Does that make sense? I think there's a there's a, a a lot to do with social media nowadays. If you think about it, um, social media it, it drives a lot of people, and and because of it, I think a lot of people are making their trips about their social media. But surely, I know you guys are. Uh, maybe it's you in particular that's the planner in your group. Yeah, I'm the planner, and I like to have um, an idea of where we're headed, and I certainly like to check out what things are around that we should see. But we also go by the motto, you can't see everything. So sometimes some things that we really wanted to see just get dropped off the list because we've run out of time or we've found something more interesting. Um, I've worked on both of our last trips when we were away for 16 months and then last year, our six months across Russia, I worked um, editing a magazine. And um, being able to do that online has just been fantastic. In Australia, they didn't know where I was and they didn't care as long as the material came through and got to the designer and we could get everything done. So that's been, that aspect of the planning and working to structures is something we've we've been able to work around. And really all we did was make sure that every three months I had two or three days clear um, somewhere with a good Wi-Fi signal. And, but as far as planning your trip and uh, using that as a, a template for traveling, I couldn't agree more with Graham. Uh, when I, uh, our first journey, uh, we got, uh, we raced through um, uh, Western Europe and got to Turkey. And uh, all of a sudden it clicked. You slow down, you take time, you see the beautiful sights, um, you see a little fishing village down uh, the coast, and you just go there and have coffee. And oh, this is nice. You might stay an extra day. So we do. And that's, that's when that's you where, really start appreciating it. That's when road mode kicks in, I think, when you're just sitting there having a coffee and there's no pressure anymore. That's when you really feel like you're doing what you're meant to be doing. Exactly. And then, and then you have the drama that you realise that if you don't actually leave Turkey soon, you will not get through Iran before the snow comes and the mountain <laughs> passes will be closed. So there does come a point where you're long to get where you need to go. <laughs> 
this this sort of uh, you know could be connected with the next thing that we want to talk about. So maybe we'll we'll drag it over as well. But our next thing that we were going to talk about was does intensive trip planning make you better prepared for a mundane adventure? Tongue in cheek there um, with uh, Google Earth and and Google Street View and tourism websites and forums and countless blogs. Um, virtually every area has already been explored somehow, and there's there's information out there. So when planning our trip, um, we get more information now than we ever have been able to uh, in in, the, in history. And the question is, is does accessing that huge store of information remove um, part of the adventure, that thing we were dreaming about to begin with, the, the, the idea that we're heading out on an adventure, we can over plan, or what I would call over plan, by accessing all this information. But on the other hand, is not accessing that information sort of irresponsible? In other words, you know, you, you head off, you hear of somebody who heads off into an area that had they done their research, um, they never should have been there and they wouldn't have gone there. But on the other hand, exploring new places is is part of the excitement of travel yeah if i can start this one i was just because when i what i should be doing right now is researching my next trip and i'm not because the thought of it is not so much daunting it's just boring i don't really like the research aspect of it and i very much enjoy the surprise element of uh, of not knowing what's coming Equally, there's a huge frustration of passing by some world-renowned place which you're unaware of because you were ignorant to it because you haven't done it. But for me, one of the greatest things now, or two of the greatest things, originally when I did my first trips, it was always the Horizons Unlimited website. But I much prefer the Horizons Unlimited Facebook because it is so up to date. And I'm not saying this because Grant's with us, but it's so up to date. <laughs> I think for, he is. Um, <laughs> no, true. No, it's true. Because the problem, one of my little gripes with Horizons Unlimited website is I find the search engine sometimes a little tricky. But with Facebook, it's absolutely instant. Instant information. And for, for the lazy person who doesn't want to scroll... Well, there you have it. There's an excerpt from ARR Raw. And you can get that just by visiting our website, www.adventureriderradio.com. Look on the links up the top. You'll see the ARR Raw show link. Just click on that and follow your way. You will find the episodes there free to download. We hope you enjoy it. Let us know what you think. ARR Raw. This episode is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. Sign up for their e-rider newsletter too at maxbmw.com. That's M-A-X-B-M-W.com. And Best Rest Products, home of Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, whether you're on the road or off the road, for that matter, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system, and it can inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's made in the USA, and get this, it has a lifetime warranty, which is brand new. Best Rest also makes tire changing and tire repair kits that are small enough to fit in your saddlebag, and the crew at Best Rest are adventure riders themselves. They know what you need when you're out exploring the world. Visit them at cyclepump.com. That's cyclepump.com. 
Puget Sound Safety Off-Road, or PSSOR, provides world-class motorcycle training. Learn proper off-road riding techniques from the pros at PSSOR for your dirt bike, dual sport, or large adventure bike, and increase your skill and confidence so you're ready to tackle your next adventure. Visit www.pssor.com. That's www.pssor.com. that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio and we hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. I want to say a special thanks to our advertisers Max BMW, Best Rest Products, PSSOR, Aero Stitch, and Giant Loop. And a special thanks to our co-producer Elizabeth Martin who once again is working right across from me. I can see her over there working on stuff for the next episode. And, and wait, before you go, I'm going to tell you to drop by the website, send us your comments and show suggestions for upcoming episodes and what you think of the shows that you've heard up till now. I'm going to encourage you to drop by and click on that little button there that says ARR Raw. Check out the Raw show. Once a month it's coming out. Once a month you're going to be able to hear this roundtable discussion with pretty much the same panelists that we have right now. We've got Grant Johnson, Sam Manicom, Graham Field, Shirley Hardy Ricks, and Brian Ricks and myself, Jim Martin. You can sit and hear our panel discussion once a month. Well, now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. See you next week. This is Jackie Burnow, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 